Almighty God, thank you for another day and another opportunity to serve and glorify your name. We pray, Father, that you will bless this study as we consider a very significant chapter in your word. Bless us with good understanding, Father, and bless us to take heed uh, to the warnings and the lessons that we can learn in it. Thank you for your word that guides us and is our light in a very dark time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to another Bible study here at the Monta Vista Church of Christ. My name is Sean Jeffries, and I'm very thankful for those of you uh, who have tuned in to study God's Word on this day. This past Wednesday, we actually began a series of Bible studies on Matthew chapter 24. In fact, we're going to do a three-part Bible study series on Matthew 24. At the Monta Vista Church of Christ, we are currently reading through the Gospel of Matthew uh, in our daily Bible reading. And since we're going to be at Matthew chapter 24 in a few days, and since this chapter is somewhat complicated and controversial, I felt it was good for us to maybe just kind of go through it together, read it together, and, and try to break down the things that are being said in it together. In fact, in our first study that we had this past Wednesday, the main thing we really considered was how the majority of this chapter is referring not to the end of the world and the return of Jesus. Instead, it is referring or talking about the end of Jerusalem. It is talking about the end of the Jewish nation, the end of the temple system. Back in Matthew chapter 24, we really looked at on Wednesday the first 14 verses of this chapter. In Matthew 24, beginning with verse number 1, we see that in the context, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem, and he's with his apostles, and he's teaching in the temple, and eventually when they come out of the temple, the Lord points out all of the temple buildings to the apostles, and he tells them that one day the temple was going to be destroyed. He said that one day not one stone was going to be left upon another. Jesus, in the first couple of verses of Matthew 24, is predicting the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Now, this prediction Jesus made prompted the apostles, once they reached the Mount of Olives, to ask Jesus a couple of questions. And the first question they asked Jesus in verse number three is, when will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? When will not one stone be left upon another? The apostles want to know, when is Jerusalem and the temple going to be destroyed? And Jesus answers that question. He answers that question in verses 4 through 14 by letting them know that before the temple was destroyed and before Jerusalem was destroyed, there would be several warning signs that preceded it. Jesus says that before Jerusalem was destroyed, there would be many false Christs that would pop up onto the scene. There will be many men who claim to be the Messiah. 
and even the Son of God. He says there will be wars and rumors of wars and nations against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms and, and earthquakes and famines and, and various places. He says that disciples would be persecuted and some would even betray one another in order to save their own lives. But would also be false prophets. And even though all these terrible things would be taking place, some kind of way the gospel, through the providence of God, the gospel would still be spread into all the world. Jesus says that all of these things would precede the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And we pointed out in our last study that history tells us, both historical evidence and evidence found in the gospel tells us, that all of these things took place before Jerusalem's destruction, just like Jesus said. Prior to the Romans coming into Jerusalem to destroy the city in 70 AD, every one of these things took place. Jesus was right. These warning signs preceded Jerusalem's destruction. And so that was really the main thing we looked at in our last study, we, we really wanted to set the context for the chapter and emphasize and point out how the majority of Matthew 24, contrary to what some folks suggest, the majority of Matthew 24 is not talking about the second coming of Jesus. It is not talking about signs that would precede the Lord's second coming and the end of the world. Instead, the majority of Matthew 24 is talking about the signs and the events that would precede Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD. The first three verses of that chapter set up the context. Now, in our study today, we want to dig a little deeper into Matthew 24. Now that we've set up the overall context of what's going on in the chapter, in this study, we want to look at some of the more difficult passages that are found in this chapter. And so as we begin our study this morning, I want to first read the some of the verses that we have yet to read. We did not read these verses in our last study. And so go in your Bible to Matthew 24, and let's start reading with verse number 15, and then we'll go down to verse number 36. These verses will be the verses that we're going to be considering in this study. After Jesus lists the warning signs that would precede Jerusalem's destruction, Matthew 24, verse number 15, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. 
Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance, but if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out, or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he's near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Okay, in an effort to break down some of these more difficult verses here in Matthew 24, I want to begin this study by looking at two very important texts to understanding what's going on in this chapter. And the first text I want us to consider is what is referred to as, or what we can refer to as, the time text, the time text in Matthew 24 and verse number 34, Jesus says to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation, this generation that I'm speaking to will by no means pass away till all these things take place. I want to highlight that language, this generation. Do you see that? This generation. When Jesus says they're this generation, he's not referring to our generation today. He's not referring to a generation that will live 2,000 years later. Instead, he is referring to the people living in the first century, the people living during that time. Jesus says that everything he has said prior to this verse applies to those people. Whatever we want to say about the interpretation of those verses is one thing, but we got to at least understand that everything Jesus says prior to verse 34 applies to the people of that generation. It applies to the people living in the first century. Those things are not to be applied to us today. Jesus makes that very clear in the time text. In Matthew 24 and verse 34, Jesus says that everything he has said up to that point applies to that generation. Those things will take place in the first century. And then we come to a second important text. And the second important text is what we can refer to as the transition text. The transition text. If you remember in the last video, I share with you how in my conviction, my conviction leads me to believe that in Matthew 24 and verse 3, when the apostles come to Jesus in the Mount of Olives, 
they ask him not one, but two different questions. The first question is, when will these things take place? When will the temple be destroyed? And Jesus tells them in verses 4 all the way down to verse number 34 that there will be several warning signs that preceded the destruction of, of the temple and Jerusalem to let them know when that was about to happen. I believe Jesus answers the first question in verses 4 through 34, but then in verse number 36, I believe Jesus starts answering the second question they ask, and the second question is, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age or the end of the world? I believe Jesus starts answering that question here in verse 36, because what Jesus starts talking about here seems to be a very different event than what he talks about in verses 4 down to verse 34. In Matthew 24 and verse 36, after giving a list of all the signs and the seasons and the symbols that will precede Jerusalem's destruction, he says in this verse, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Now, before he was talking about an event where, where some did know, he knew. He was giving them signs that would precede it. He says, now though, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, not even himself, but the Father only. You see, unlike the first event, where he seemed to be, seems to be indicating that he knew was when it was going to take place with this next event, Jesus says that only the Father knows. The angels don't know. He doesn't know the Holy Spirit only the Father knows. That's what Jesus says. In fact, I want to notice some other contrast that you find in the event being talked about prior to verse 36 compared to the event talked about after verse 36. You see, before, 30, before verse 36, when it came to the destruction of Jerusalem, when it came to that event Jesus is describing, he says that time could be known. He says, you can know when that event's about to take place because you're going to have several signs that will warn you that it's about to happen. But after verse 36, he seems to be talking about an event where the time is unknown. He doesn't know it. The angels don't know it. The Holy Spirit doesn't know it. Only the Father knows it. So before 36, he talks about an event where you could know when it was about to happen. After verse 36, this event he talks about is an event where you can't know when it's about to happen. Before 36, verse 36, he talks about an event that will be preceded by famine, pestilence, wars, a lot of bad things. But when it came to the event after verse 36, he says that it's going to be peace, normality. People are going to be marrying and being given in marriage. They're going to be eating and drinking. They're going to be, be living normal and happy lives. When it came to the event before verse 36, he says it's similar to a fig tree. When a fig tree starts sprouting its leaves, that is a sign that the summer is near. But when it came to the event after verse 36, it's not going to be like a fig tree. It's not going to be like something that gives you signs. Instead, he says, it's going to be like a thief in the night. When it came to the event before verse 36, he uses language like those days, 
those days. That language is used over and over again in verses 4 down to verse number 34. But when it comes to the event that he describes beginning in verse 36, he doesn't describe it as those days and says he is, instead he describes it as that day, that hour. That's a contrast. Before, with the destruction of Jerusalem, it's those days. Now it's that day, that hour. And then when it came to the destruction of Jerusalem, and the event described prior to verse number 36, clearly that is a local event. It is limited to Jerusalem. It is limited to the area where the temple was. But when he starts talking about the event after verse 36, it's clearly a universal event. In fact, when you go into chapter 25, he describes it as an event where all nations, all nations, not just the Jews, not just the people in Jerusalem, but people all over the world are going to be gathered before him. So, so clearly you have, you have a contrast being made with, an event, with events being described, two events being described in Matthew 24. There's an event being described in verses 4 down to verse 34, an event where the time could be known, where you're going to have famine, pestilence, wars that preceded. It's going to be like a fig tree. It's going to be those days, a local event. That's the destruction of Jerusalem. But after verse 36, where he's referring to, I believe, the second coming, when he comes again and the world is destroyed, the time is unknown. When he comes back, it's going to be peace, normality. It's going to be like a thief in the night. No signs that precede it. It is that day, that hour, and it's going to be a universal event, not just limited, not just limited to Jerusalem. And so what I just want you to see, my dear friends, is there is strong evidence to suggest that a transition is taking place in verse 36. A transition is taking place in verse 36. In the first 35 verses or so of chapter 24, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, but beginning in verse 36 and going through chapter 25, it seems he's talking about the second coming and the end of the world. And so remember the time text and remember the transition text. Now let's try to break down these verses we just read, verses 15 through 31. As I've stated before, and I just want to state again for the sake of emphasis, History tells us that the city of Jerusalem, the holy city, was destroyed in 70 A.D. Josephus writes about that, the Jewish historian who lived in the first century, he writes about that. He was alive during that time. In 70 A.D., the Romans got fed up with the Jews, their, the Jews' constant rebellion. In fact, they began the siege a few years prior. But by 70 A.D., they had wiped out the city of Jerusalem. They tore down the temple completely. As Jesus said, not one stone was left upon another. I have actually been to Israel, to Jerusalem, and to this day, some of the stones uh, that, that the Romans knocked down, that the Romans caused, they're still there. They're still there to this day. So Jesus was right. The Romans came in. They destroy Jerusalem. History confirms that. And we need to understand that this occurred not just because the Romans got fed up with the Jews and their constant rebellion, but it also occurred because, because God wanted it to occur. 
God ordained it to occur. God punished the Jewish people because they rebelled against him and they rejected his son. This is why they were destroyed as a nation in 70 AD. When the Romans came in, they not only destroyed the temple, but they destroyed the, the records. All of the genealogical records were destroyed. And so the Jews lost their identity completely. They could no longer worship according to what the old law said. They could no longer worship that way anymore, and they could not even trace their genealogy anymore. This was a judgment from God, and I want to show you that as we continue on in this study. Now, the events that Jesus describes in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 34, are events that occurred over a 40-year period from about... 35 or 34 AD all the way up to about 68 AD. So about 40 years or so. Now we began reading verse number 15. And verse number 15 speaks of a key event that the disciples were to watch for to let them know they needed to get out of Jerusalem, that the Romans were about to completely destroy the city. In Matthew 24 and verse number 15, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, that lets you know it's time to get out of town. If, you, if you've waited until this occurs, you may have waited too long. The abomination of desolation is a reference to when the Romans went into the temple to defile it. Jesus says that when you see the Romans making their way to the temple, it is time for you to get out of town. Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. Luke also mentions this in his account. Go over to Luke, the 21st chapter. Luke 21 is a parallel chapter to Matthew 24. And in Luke 21, in verse number 20, Jesus said it this way. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that is, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the Roman armies, then recognize that her, Jerusalem, her desolation is near. When Rome, when the Romans start to surround a city, you just know it's about to be over. The judgment is finally here. Verse 21, he says, in those who are in Judea, you must flee into the mountains. And those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter into the city. Because these are the days of vengeance, vengeance from God, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Notice here how Jesus says, Jesus says that when the disciples, his people, saw the Romans surrounding the city, and making their way into the city, it's time to get out of town. It's time to leave Jerusalem. The days of vengeance, the days of God's vengeance, the days of God's judgment, they were, they were there. Jerusalem was not going to be saved. It was going to be destroyed. In fact, in verses 16 through 20, Jesus not only tells his people to flee the city, but he even tells them how to flee the city. He says in verse number 16 that when you see the Romans making their way into Jerusalem, flee into the mountains. You might have a better chance if you, if you flee by way of the mountains. 
If you're on top of your housetop, don't go down to get anything into your house. You're not going to have time for that. If you're in the field, don't go back and get clothes. You're not going to have time to do that. If you're on the housetop, if you're in the field, get out of the city immediately. You're not going to have time to go back and get any of your possessions. He also sends a warning to people, to women who are pregnant and nursing babies in those days. If a woman is pregnant, if a woman is nursing a small child, it's going to be very hard for her to flee. It's going to be very hard for her to travel when the Romans start making their way into the city. Jesus says, if you're pregnant or nursing babies during those days, it is going to be very difficult for you. It is going to be very difficult for you to get out of the city. And he also says, pray that when this happens, it doesn't happen in the winter. Pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Why? Well, because in the winter, it's going to be very cold. It's hard to travel, especially on foot in the winter in cold weather. It's going to be very unpleasant. And why is it hard to travel on the Sabbath? Well, if you start fleeing on the Sabbath, guess what? No Jews are going to aid you in your escape. It's the Sabbath day. So you're not going to have any aid from, from other Jews if you start leaving on this day. It's going to be difficult if you're pregnant and nursing babies in those days. It's going to be difficult if it's the winter or if it's on the Sabbath. When these things occur, you better hope that it's an easy way out because if it's the winter or the Sabbath or if you're nursing children, it will be difficult. Jesus tells his people how to flee the city. And then when you get down to verses 21 through 22, Jesus describes this event, the destruction of Jerusalem, as a time of great tribulation. He says it's not just a time of tribulation, but it is a time of great tribulation. He says it is an event that since the beginning of the world until this time, no one has, has ever seen anything like this. This is it's the worst event. This, this is a time period where it's just awful days, bad days, absolute horror and terror. History tells us that when the Romans finally made their way into Jerusalem, at least one million Jews died. Men, women, children, old people, young people, over one million Jews died. Blood was in the streets. The Romans were merciless. They showed no mercy. It was a, a horrible moment, one of the most horrific moments in the history of the world. In fact, it was so bad that Jesus said that unless God shortened the days, unless God intervened, no one would have been saved from this. Not even the elect, not even disciples would have been spared from this had not God intervened in some way. Had not God providentially stopped this. Even Christians would have been hunted down and murdered. Jesus says this is a, a time of great tribulation. And then in verses 23 through 28, Jesus makes the point that there will be no personal coming of him at Jerusalem's destruction. 
He says that during this time, if people say to you, the Christ is here, don't believe that. Don't believe people who tell you that I've come back around this time. That's not going to happen. You're going to have false Christ. You're going to have false prophets who rise up and they're going to show wonders and signs and they're going to deceive a lot of people. They're even going to deceive disciples. Jesus says a lot of false messiahs were going to pop up during this time. But he says, I warned you beforehand to know that I am not coming at Jerusalem's destruction. There will be no personal coming of mine. So they tell you that I'm in the desert. Don't you go there. If they tell you I'm in the inner room, don't you believe that? He says that when I come again, it's not going to be in the desert. It's not going to be in an inner room somewhere. Instead, it's going to be like lightning coming from the east to the west. It's everybody's going to know it. You're going to know it. You're not going to have to go into the desert or into some secret place to see me. It's going to be like lightning coming from the east into the west. In verse number 28, when he mentions the carcass or the corpse there, the carcass or, or, or the corpse, there he's referring to the nation of Israel. He's referring to the spiritually dead nation of Israel. He is saying that the Romans are going to be like eagles. They're going to be like vultures who are going to come into Jerusalem and feed on the spiritually dead carcass or corpse of Israel. The Romans will be the eagles. The Romans will be the vultures and the nation of Israel is going to be the corpse. They're going to be the carcass. And the eagles will eat the carcass. Rome will punish the people of Israel. And so Jesus point is, is instead of looking for me to come back personally during this time. You need to be looking for God's judgment. Don't be looking for me. Instead, you look for judgment from God. It is going to be coming. The eagles will gather around the carcass. And then in verses 29 through 31, when going to these passages, so often people mistakenly apply these passages to the personal second coming of Jesus. And while these passages may look like they are referring to that, let me suggest that they are not. They are not referring to the personal coming of Jesus. Notice again, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, my dear friends, while the surface, while on the surface, it may appear that Jesus is talking about his personal coming. Remember verse 34 again. Remember there in verse 34 of this chapter, Jesus says that everything he's talking about prior to that verse is for those people, for the people of that generation. So he can't be talking about that. 
In fact, we need to understand that this kind of language that Jesus is using here, it is language that is found frequently throughout the whole Bible. It is language that is found in the Old Testament and is found in the New Testament. It is language that, that was very common to the Jewish hearers of the first century. You see, this language Jesus is using here is actually Old Testament apocalyptic language. It is actually Old Testament figurative language, Old Testament symbolic language that God uses to describe the judgment that he's going to bring on a nation. It is not literal language. Instead, it is apocalyptic language. It is dramatic, figurative language that the prophets use throughout the Bible to talk about God snuffing out a nation, God extinguishing the light of a nation, God doing away with the nation because they are wicked. Let me show you some examples as to what I'm talking about and write these verses down. Go over into the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah uses this language, this same language in his writings. In Isaiah chapter 13 and in verse number 1, in Isaiah 13 and verse 1, the chapter begins with these words, the oracle concerning Babylon. Babylon, a heathen nation. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Drop down to verse 6. In verse 6, it says, Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Drop down to verse number 9. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Verse 10, for the stars, isn't that what Jesus talked about here? The stars, well, here Isaiah says, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. It's the same language. It is not literal language. It's not saying the, the, the literal moon will not shed its light or the sun literally will be dark or, or the stars of heaven will literally not flash forth light. No, it's just Old Testament apocalyptic, dramatic, figurative language to talk about God bringing judgment on the people of Babylon. This is familiar language used throughout the scriptures. Go over to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 32. Ezekiel also uses this language. In Ezekiel chapter 32, beginning with verse number 1, it says, in the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You compare yourself to a young lion of nations, yet you are like the monster in the seas, and you burst forth in your rivers and muddy the waters with your feet. Remember, in the context, he's talking to the king of Egypt. And filed their rivers. Verse 3, thus says the Lord God, now I will spread my net over you with a company of many peoples, and they shall lift you up in my net. I will leave you on the land, I will cast you on the open field, and I will cause all the birds of the heavens to dwell on you, and I will satisfy the beasts of the whole earth with you. 
I will lay your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your refuse. I will also make the land drink the discard, the discharge of your blood as far as the mountains and the ravines will be full of you. And when I extinguish you, notice the same idea. When I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken the stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you, and I will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord. None of that is to be made literal. None of this is to be taken literal. This is apocalyptic language, figurative, dramatic language God uses through the prophets that the Jewish hearers were very familiar with during this time. This is God's dramatic, figurative language that he uses in the Bible to talk about judgment coming on a nation. In this case, judgment coming on the people of Egypt. This language is used to refer to the end of Babylon, to the end of Egypt. And then when you go into your New Testament, to the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 8 and in verse number 12, here I believe God is referring to the judgment he was going to bring on the Roman Empire. Revelation 8 and verse 12, the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. Notice how John the Apostle uses the same language. This is not meant to be taken literal. The Jews of this day understood that. Now, we struggle with that because in 21st century Western society, we like to literalize everything. That's not what the Jews did during this time. The Jews understood what apocalyptic language was. It was a very familiar genre to them. And both in Isaiah and Ezekiel and John, when they talk about God darkening the sun and darkening the moon and the stars not giving light, it's just God's way of saying that he was going to bring judgment on a nation. He was going to take away the light of a nation. He was going to destroy a nation to where they no longer had their identity. That's how Isaiah used the language. That's how Ezekiel used the language. That's how John used the language. And that is how Jesus is using the language here. Here, Jesus is saying that God is going to punish the nation of Israel. Like God did in the past with Babylon and Egypt, and even later with the Romans, God was going to destroy this wicked, evil, and rebellious nation. They would be snuffed out. God was going to take out their light as a nation because they rejected his son. That's what's going on in verse number 29. Verse 29 is just apocalyptic judgment language that the Lord is using to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem. And then in verse number 30, there, here when Jesus talks about the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the heaven, a language there is the idea that when this judgment came, these people would know that Jesus was in heaven. <laughs> they would know that this was a judgment coming from Jesus. This came from God. They would know that when they saw this judgment come. And in verse number 31, after Jesus says that this would be a sign that he's in heaven, 
and that this judgment comes from him and everybody's going to mourn during this time because of this judgment. It's going to be so severe. He's going to send his angels with the great sound of the trumpet. Remember, we did a study a few weeks ago, and Brother Don Johnson has wrote, written articles about this, that the word angels in the Bible is not just used to refer to spiritual beings, but it is often also used to refer to messengers, those who proclaim God's word, whether they're prophets or preachers. And it's my conviction that this verse is talking about how even though this judgment was going to come upon the Jewish people, people were still going to be out spreading the gospel. Gospel messengers were still going to be going around the world spreading the gospel just like Jesus said, told them to do in Matthew 28 and verse number 19. And so whatever you want to say about verses 29 through 31, please keep it in this context. Please know that in those verses, Jesus is referring to the destruction of the nation of Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem. None of that is talking about the Lord's second coming. And then finally, we'll conclude with verses 32 through 35, where Jesus concludes these thoughts by giving a parable about a fig tree. He just says that just like when a fig tree starts to sprout leaves as a sign that the summer is near, in the same way everything he has said up to this point, when these things started to happen, they would be signs that God's judgment was near. It was at the door. And then Jesus concludes the thoughts by saying that his words... His words were for that generation. That generation of people in the first century would by no means pass away until everything he said pertaining to Jerusalem's destruction took place. Heaven and earth would pass away, but my words will not pass away. The idea there is the words of Jesus are true. These things were going to happen. If he said it, it's going to take place. And so, what have we studied so far? Well, the point of this is just to emphasize how the majority of Matthew 24 is Jesus answering the first question of the apostles. When will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? When will Jerusalem fall? Jesus gives them the answer to that question in verses 4 all the way down to verse number 34. Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. The Jewish people were going to going to be snuffed out and destroyed by God. God was going to do away with them as a nation. And Jesus is giving his people signs, warning signs to look out for so that they would know when to flee the city when the Romans came. Now we're going to have one more study on this in a couple of days. And in our next study, we're going to finish the chapter and we're just going to look at the contrast given pertaining to the Lord's second coming, beginning to verse 36, in comparison to what we've studied so far. So in our next study, we will pick up at verse 36, and we're going to talk about the things Jesus says all the way through chapter 25, pertaining to his personal coming, his second coming, and the end of the world. May God bless you. May God bless your family.